Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Greetings and salutations, Scholar Warriors. CJ here, Anarchy's smooth operator and your Renaissance man in this new dark age. Welcome to DHP episode 204. Recently, I was a guest on the Decentralized Revolution podcast, which is a podcast hosted by Aaron Harris and put out by the Libertarian Party's Mises Caucus. And we had a good, long, wide-ranging conversation about a variety of topics, including but not limited to my background, thoughts on war movies, differences between teaching in a conventional education setting versus podcasting, thoughts on education in general, including the effects of COVID, some recent and forthcoming or yet-to-be-released DHP episodes, and how to critically read and evaluate history books. So anyway, I thought I would share it with you as a DHP episode in case you didn't catch it already on the Decentralized Revolution, and of course I'd like to thank Aaron for having me on, and urge you to check out Decentralized Revolution. So here you go, my recent conversation with Aaron Harris. All right, Prof. CJ, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Hey, thanks very much for having me. From Northwest Florida. Um, Northeast Florida. Northeast, I'm sorry. I knew I'd get that wrong. Um, I, I am a big fan of the Dangerous History podcast. Uh, I, when I first started getting into podcasts and I saw that, I'm like, man, do I really want to listen to this guy for two and a half hours? And I found out that, yeah, I do. So uh, I really appreciate the, the work you do. And uh, that's my first question is how did – how did you, where do you come from uh, and what got you interested in being a historian and a libertarian historian at that? Well, uh, I, w- I was born in Miami. If, if uh, you, you want to go back, back that far. Um, so I, I grew up in uh, the craziest part of Florida. Uh, now I live in a slightly less crazy part of Florida, but that's, you know, graded by Florida standards, which is right. a hell of, hell of a curve. <laughs> Um, and I was interested in history from early on. I, I think it's one of those things that when you, when you go to, um, you know, K through 12 schooling or whatever, a lot of times the subjects you get interested in, is just because that's where you happen to have the teachers that were actually good Mm -hmm. and, you know, that weren't mediocre or even terrible. And so, um, you know, it may be part of what got me interested in history from very early on is that I happen to have 
one really excellent history teacher in middle school and one really excellent history teacher in high school, uh, both of whom, unlike so many public school teachers, were actually uh, experts in the topic, actually had history degrees, not just education degrees, and who were both really good at at explaining things and telling you know historical stories and whatever in ways that really grabbed me uh, and made it made it come alive. And so you know, then even through my teenage years, I was a lot of my relatives thought I was a weirdo because here I was as a teenager. And not only was I reading a lot of books, which is weird enough for, for a teenager these days, but, um, or those days, but, uh, not all the books I was reading were fiction. I was also, I was reading fiction, but I was also reading like these giant, you know, 400 page history books and whatever. And everyone was like, what's wrong with this kid? What were some um, of those that you would have been reading around that time? Uh, what sort of things? Trying to remember back. I mean, I I read just kind of random random books on on different subjects that piqued my interest. Uh, one I can remember reading very early on, and I don't quite remember where the heck I heard about this thing to begin with. Uh, was the rise and fall of the great powers by Paul Kennedy, which is a very interesting history book of sort of the rise and fall of great powers. In um, it's been many years since I last read it, but I, I think it's basically maybe the last four or 500 years that it covers. And so a lot of it's European history, but also world history too. And, um, you know, that's a pretty weird thing for someone at age, I don't know, 15, 16 to be reading the rise and fall of the great powers by Paul Kennedy. That's it's a hefty book. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I had a, I had a screw loose from early on. So, um, I went to college for some reason, uh, and and majored in history, and then went to grad what, school, and that's what we're supposed to do. We're just supposed to go to college, right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I I had my my doubts about it, uh, and you know, I I can't say that I didn't benefit from it or that I didn't didn't learn a bunch of stuff from it. Obviously, I'm still doing stuff with that degree, but you know, I mean, it, it definitely isn't for everybody. I, I'm probably the sort of person that's that a a liberal arts sort of college degree is for where like I was really into it. I was like, Oh, cool. I get to read all, you know, all these, all these neat history books. And I get to go read uh, Aristotle and, and Plato and all this sort of stuff that I hadn't got around to yet. This is cool. And I get to have discussions with people and at least a small percentage of them are interested in this stuff yeah. too. So, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't wasted on me the way it's wasted on a lot of people. But um, anyway, so, so I got, I got a master's degree. I didn't, I didn't follow through, uh, to a PhD for a variety of reasons. Um, and then I kind of just needed to get a job. And I, I found out that the kind of best thing you could do still being, I wanted to teach. I, I knew that I liked teaching cause I had done various types of teaching. Um, before I, I taught guitar a little bit when I was in high school. Uh, and then when I was in college, I, I taught, um, test prep classes for Kaplan. So, I knew I liked teaching and I knew based on student feedback, they seemed to like me doing it. So, and I had some great professors in college as well. So I was like, oh, yeah, it'd be pretty cool to teach college, but you know, it's a, it's a guild system in academia. And so it doesn't matter how much I know or how good I am. Uh, the only job you can get at like a, a fancy college or university with a master's degree is um, as an adjunct. And I taught as an adjunct at a couple of, pretty nice colleges in North Florida for a year. And when a, when a full-time gig opened up at one of them for me, I kind of said, Hey, and this was, this was at my alma mater. 
that I got my bachelor's degree from. And I taught there as an adjunct for a year and gotten great reviews from the students and all these things. So I was like, Hey, is there any way like you, I, I know, you know, you normally need a PhD, but like, come on, I've proven I can do the job and blah, blah, blah. And it's basically like, no, I mean, the, that academia is just one of those places where, it's almost as rigid as like a Hindu caste system. And so it doesn't matter if you can prove that you know what you're doing and that you can do a good job. Whereas in many jobs in the private sector, not all, but in many jobs in the private sector, there's a little bit of wiggle room, you know, yeah. where if you prove you can do the job, maybe you don't quite have the official credentials for it, but obviously you're, you can do it. So they'll, you know, they'll, they'll waive certain things, but academia is very, very, very rigid in that regard. So anyway, I got the best job that I could, uh, uh, teaching full-time, which is basically what used to be called community college. So that's, that's what I've been doing for, I think, 14 years now. Um, and then about six years ago, after thinking about it for probably a couple of years, I finally said, uh, I'm going to start a podcast. I, I got inspired by several other podcasts that had already been out there for a while. And I said, you know, I, I've got this skill set that I've developed through being in the trenches Yep. And, um, you know, if, if I can get at least some percentage of disinterested 19 year olds to, to listen to me and find it interesting, um, then, you know, there's gotta be other people out there that would be interested in, in my version of, of telling history stories and whatever. So I, I finally, in 2014, I uh, got it going with the dangerous history podcast. And, and the rest you, is history. Yeah, the, and and it's quite a great history so far. I think you just passed your 200th episode. Is that right? Yeah, I think I'm. I think I just put out two two o three a few days ago. So yeah, and uh, we're going to talk about episode uh, two hundred uh, later on. Um, let's uh, backtrack just a little bit. Where did you go to undergrad, and, and where did you go to grad school? And then tell us a little bit about the. I think your thesis in grad school is something to do with British something or other, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for my bachelor's degree, I went to Flagler College, which is a, a small liberal arts college just up the road from me now up in St. Augustine, where I used to live for quite a long time. Uh, so, And I had a mostly very good experience there as a student. Um, they they had a – because it's a small liberal arts college, The a lot of the faculty is really focused on teaching um, more so than just you know publishing and all that. I mean they, they publish – but it's not, it's not as much emphasized as like at a big university or something like that. And so in many ways, I got kind of an old school liberal arts education with a bunch of uh, classes in many topics, uh, not just in my major. Uh, I minored in political science as well. And, and they had some excellent political science teachers uh, at Flagler College. So I had a good experience. And I went to grad school and, and grad school was more of a mixed bag. I definitely had uh, some excellent professors in graduate school, but I also had some terrible ones. And same thing with the, with kind of my, my fellow students in graduate school. Some of them were great mm-hmm. uh, and, and very interesting to talk to and, and that sort of thing. And others were just, I don't know, you know, just, just boring and predictable and all that sort of thing. I, I always appreciate people wherever they're coming from, people who, who don't, aren't easily pigeonholed into uh, a simple kind of box. And I, I saw a fair amount of that in graduate school where everybody just sort of checked the same, you know, ideological perspective, yeah. but, you know, I did find some interesting, some interesting uh, uh, people for sure in, in the faculty and in the students. 
my wife says that about me. She's like, all your friends are weird. And yeah. and I'm like, yeah, that's good. That, that There's a reason why, because <laughs> they're not boring. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I can't stand people who, if you get their take on one issue, if you can accurately predict their, their take on every other issue that exists um, to me, there's like, what's the point of, of even talking to this person? You know, I, I appreciate people wherever they're coming from uh, left, right, something else, libertarian, whatever people who have at least some views that you couldn't have predicted based on their views on other things. Right. And that, I told my wife, that's actually one thing that I like about hers. Cause I don't always know what she's going to say next. And, <laughs> and, uh, and that's a, a good thing to have in a friend or a mate, um, sure. somebody who challenges you. Um, so in grad school, um, did you get a sense of what it would be like to go down that academic track uh, for the PhD and say, this isn't for me. I don't want to be writing these little specialized articles that nobody reads. Was that part of it or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of it was, um, you know, kind of family and personal circumstances. Uh, and I, and I did well in graduate school. I think I only got one B the whole time I was there. Um, so it wasn't a matter of like, I, I, stop short of the phd because i wasn't doing well at it yeah um i actually you know got nothing but glowing re- recommendations from from the professors who were who were on my uh, graduate committee and in fact when i when i passed my graduate uh, my master's exams they basically told me i was preemptively approved this was at the university of tennessee by the way oh, wow. uh, they they basically told me i was like preemptively approved basically to go to the P they're like, uh, I think it was actually my, my advisor, uh, who said, as far as we're concerned, you're already operating at a PhD level. So, right. you know, and again, I'm not saying that to try and brag or whatever, cause in some ways I have, I have issues with academia, but just to say that like my, my sour grapes towards academia are not because I didn't do well at it and they, you know, treated me badly or whatever. Um, I did pretty well. But yeah, part of it's part of it was sort of personal and family things going on at the time. And part of it was also as, as you were sort of alluding to that, um, you know, I, I had become disillusioned with aspects of it. I enjoyed the aspects of like really trying to, to learn new stuff and, and, and do research and figuring out how to uh, take the things you're learning and share them with people effectively. Like I, I really appreciated that, but there was so much else to it as far as like, the the kind of politics so like the 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 office politics in a way of of academia which you know really a lot of it who gets what job and whatever is um it's like in so many other things you know it's it's not a pure meritocracy and yeah definitely the the hyper specialization was driving me nuts the idea that you have to be some sort of like super duper specialist in one very specific topic or whatever. Uh, and I always had enough curiosity that I was always wanting to look into something else. Yeah. So in, in fact, part of why I, I went with British empire, aside from the fact I was just really interested in it at the time was I felt like by, by making the British empire, one of my main focuses, I could, I could look into a lot of things because yeah. the British empire yeah. was around for several hundred years and spanned much of the globe. So it's yeah. like, if you're looking at British empire, you can study everything from the American revolution to world war two, to the history of India, India to yeah. Africa. I mean, you can just, you know, almost do anything with it. So that was, that was part of why I, I picked that as well. 
And um, uh, let's see, uh, what what exactly was your thesis on? It was something about memorabilia or something like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was um, looking at British Empire propaganda. Okay. And uh, in the in the twentieth century, in the the interwar years, so between World Wars One and Two, um, the British Empire was geographically at its peak. But as is always the case when an empire is physically at its peak, it's in many ways already uh, uh, weakening and declining. And it seems like the elites of an empire often can kind of sense this, even though they often don't want to say it out loud. But they kind of have this this sort of malaise where they kind of realize like, oh, this thing is jumping the shark. Well, maybe if we all pretend it's still the greatest empire ever, it'll somehow be all right, you know. And um so in the in the 20s and 30s they were there was like a renewed propaganda offensive to really try to make the empire popular amongst the british masses which mm-hmm. you know it's it's sort of debatable amongst the specialists in that field like how effective was this you know some historians will say eh, a lot of the actual british public never really bought into it i mean they kind of superficially did but like they never really thought the empire was was a big priority and others will say no they actually uh, the, the, they did inculcate uh, a lot of popularity for the empire on the part of the masses. And, you know, I don't know if you can ever settle that because we don't have super, super accurate scientific polling data uh, from the time period. Yeah. And, and and they had a, they had a big job to do because world war one was so devastating to the British public. Right. I mean, they, yeah. that was probably part of trying to, um, not only were things in far flung places, of the empire not working out, everybody in Britain knew someone who had been killed, you know, everybody's nephew got killed in that war or something like that. So it, it must've been a, um, you could see why they would mount an offensive like that. Um, yeah. 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 And, and even before that, the Boer war at yeah. the turn of the century, uh, which the British quote unquote won, but it was in many ways, a hollow or Pyrrhic victory where, a lot of the British public sort of felt like, yeah, but what did what did we really do all that for, and what did we really win? And then there's the fact that once they they complete their takeover of South Africa, uh, which had been started like a hundred years earlier, uh, then it doesn't take very long until the uh, white South Africans are able to kind of win the peace politically and sort of take over much of the actual governing of of South Africa. Um, within the British Empire, but then kind of really run things locally anyway. And so it was a it was a really I'm I'm trying to think of a good analogy to it. I mean, it's not quite Vietnam because the United States lost Vietnam, but it it would be like if the United States won Vietnam, but at a, but at a great cost and and with a lot of controversy and a lot of people sort of felt that it was an empty victory. And then you have world war one just being a complete, you know, slaughterhouse with a body count way beyond the Boer war. Uh, And yeah, a lot of people and, and and something that the people often don't don't think about um, in this country anyway, I'm sure they probably do in the UK is that world war one is supposed to have been disproportionately bloody to the British elite because unlike say uh, the modern American elites, the British, to their credit, have long had an ethos amongst sort of the aristocracy that 
you should serve in some of these wars. Like even even to this day, it's a it's a little bit kind of pageantry, but still it's it's a legacy where even to this day, the male members of the royal family yeah. will serve in the military in some capacity. And, you know, contrast that with with the United States where I mean, there's a handful of them, but very few, you know, senators, kids and whatever go anywhere near any of the wars their fathers are are giving you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in the UK, it was like a disproportionate number of like, you know, young male aristocrats had gone and led from the front, which is, you know, hey, they're they're not cowards and they're not hypocrites. But, man, a lot of them, you know, if you're in the front lines at the Somme or whatever, you're you're in deep trouble. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, the, the more I read about world war one. Um, it just blows my mind. Did you, I, I haven't seen it yet, but did you see 1917, the movie? Yes. Yes. And it, you recommend it? Yeah, I do. I think that based on everything I know, it's probably the, the world war one movie so far that has done the best job of really capturing what, the Western front must have looked like Mm -hmm. and sort of felt like experientially by that point in the war. Uh, I think, you know, there've, there've been some movies that have gotten parts of it, right. But just the, I mean, by the time you get to 1917, the, the destruction and bloodshed in the Western front where like they had fought back and forth for just a handful of miles of ground over the years, you know, at costs of hundreds of thousands of men with every charge and so you think about like what the landscape would have looked like after it had been raked over that many times. I mean, you know, imagine if the Battle of Gettysburg kept just grinding on back and forth for weeks over the same little stretch of ground or whatever. Like, yeah. How how long until there's just, you know, bodies and stuff and destroyed uh, uh, ground and just, you know, looks like an apocalyptic nightmare. And I think 1917 um, gets that better than any other world war one movie um that i've ever yeah. seen yeah i've been wanting to see it i just need to get in the right frame of mind to watch something like that i'm not, I'm not as uh um uh the older i get the less stomach i have for for war even in fictionalized um uh senses it's can be kind of traumatic and i heard that one's it's 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 pretty intense so yeah it's it's very intense and the way that uh the director did it it looks like it's all one continuous cut, okay. you know, all, all one continuous. Now it's not. They right. they very very cleverly and strategically, like when the the camera quickly goes behind a wall and then catches up with the soldiers a few seconds later on the other side or whatever. Um, you know, they, they they cleverly did the cuts that way, but it's it's like it's one continuous take, and it's just it's very intense. Yeah. It's very intense. So yeah, it's not you know. It's not a, a lighthearted, fun, escapist piece of cinema. Um, and, and it's one that I think is harder. We always run into this this issue with war movies where people will Rorschach onto them, whether they take away that it's pro-war or anti-war. And there's plenty of movies that were self-consciously deliberately made to be anti-war that then later become popular amongst, you know, gung-ho troops and whatever, like Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket. Like these are, these are very anti-war films, but like a lot of times the, the gung-ho not yet disillusioned troops love these movies. Uh, even, even amongst the troops who are not at all cynical or disillusioned, who are, who are still like, oh yeah, gung ho for team America and whatever. Uh, they love these movies, which kind of just shows you that, I mean, is, is it possible to make, uh, 
an anti-war film that can't be interpreted as pro-war. I think it is, but, yeah. but I, I think it's, it's rare that you, you make one that I'm, I'm sure there's probably even out there somewhere pro-war people who love the movie platoon. Yeah. And just, you know, interpret it how they want to. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I happen to know uh, one of my best friends is a, he was almost a green beret. He got, um, he got injured in the last phase of training before uh, getting his tab, as they say. And through him, I know some, a few other guys who are special forces guys and who did, you know, do some stuff over in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's funny, you're, you're exactly right. And I think they, they like, you mentioned the two movies, Full Metal Jacket and Apocalypse Now, that they bring up all the time. And I think there's a little bit of irony or something in there because I, they know that war sucks, but there's a certain type of people that they, they're kind of okay with that. It's, it's just bizarre. I think they know that there's an anti-war message there, but to, to admit that their whole career and their lives are you know something that is not good – takes a lot. And so I think that's maybe where some of the, the gung ho interpretations of that come from. Cause they don't want to really confront what it, what it really means. So. Yeah. 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 I, I think there's definitely something to that. And I think also part of what might be going on is that, um, and I, I'm, I'm not a veteran, so I, you know, I don't know, but, um, but I've spoken to a lot of veterans over the years for sure, including many of my students. And I think what might explain some of them is some of them might have this sort of us and them mentality where it's like, I can speak about the truth of war with my fellow, you know, soldiers and fellow veterans and what have you, but I'll still get angry if a, if a civilian, yeah. you know, criticizes or questions the war. It's, it's sort of like the same thing that cops will, will sometimes do where sometimes just amongst themselves, they might openly be like, Oh yeah, the war on drugs is BS. And yeah, we harass lots of people who probably should just be left alone or whatever. Yeah. But then, you know, when it comes to them interacting with, with the general population, suddenly it's, it's all defensive and it's all, no, we're the noble, you know, blue heroes saving civilization. And, and maybe also on the part of, of soldiers and veterans and those sorts of folks, there's, there might be, and again, just speculating, there might be some element where they, they feel and I could be totally, to totally off on this, but there might be some element where they feel like they're somehow tougher than the general public yeah. because they can handle the truth. Yeah. And so there's sort of a pride like, yeah, we know that war is not this glorious, noble thing, that it's this kind of ugly, vicious, chaotic mess uh, and, and that you know, right and wrong has got very little to do with any of it. But – we're the chosen it's this esoteric versus exoteric split that i've talked about on my show in different contexts where it's like part of what defines us as as different from them is that we can handle the truth right and so we can watch a movie like apocalypse now or full metal jacket and still be pro-war and all that stuff um because we're we're you know able to handle that that sort of uncomfortable truth yeah. I know you like to recommend movies. Uh, you, you're actually in the middle of a series now uh, recommending uh, documentary movies. Um, give us a couple other two or three war movies, either fictional or, or documentary uh, that that might be good. Hmm. Um, well, let's see. Uh, one that I like that 
doesn't portray the action of the battlefield in in nearly as much depth or detail as uh as 1917 but another one of my favorite world war one movies is uh what's it called joyous noel oh yeah yeah that's a great one yeah. which yeah it's about the christmas truce yep. and uh that's you know a story that that i wish more people these days know and and i did do a podcast episode on on the christmas truce um a long time ago and so that's really cool because it's this spontaneous this spontaneous instance of um you know the two sides on the western front just on their own the the common soldiers just saying hey for christmas let's stop killing each other and you know they ended up playing soccer in no man's land and yeah. and 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 it was one of the most dangerous moments of world war 1 because and, and this is why the armies on all sides never let that happen ever again. This was the first Christmas of the war in December, 1914. And they, they basically like said, anyone who's fraternizing with the enemy ever again, Christmas or not is, is going to be, you know, probably just shot, if not, you know, tossed in the brig. And it just shows you how dangerous it is that, you know, for like a working class British or French soldier to, realize that the working class German private on the other side of no man's land is not his enemy. And that despite the differences in language and whatever, the reality is a working class enlisted soldier on one side has way more in common with the working class enlisted soldier on the other side than either of them do with their own uh, generals or their own politicians and their own elites and whatever. And, the Christmas truce is just one of those moments where, where people kind of somewhat started to realize this. And of course the great tragedy is that it was, you know, prevented from, from happening again. It was prevented from, um, you know, the story of it wasn't, wasn't allowed to circulate in the press at the time in the belligerent countries. And so, you know, the tragedy is there's like no greater lesson that comes out of this. There's no, you know, Eureka moment. I mean, there were people around, including my, my favorite socialist of all time, Eugene Debs, uh, who were making just this case that this, that world war one is, you know, it's a, it's a dispute between a couple of rival gangs of plutocrats in different countries. And that, that the average people in any of these countries have, have nothing to do with it, uh, and have no reason to hate the other, the other country's people and all this sort of thing. So, uh, joyous Noel is good, good for, for that, that whole story. Okay. Um, where in the evolution of you becoming a historian, uh, where along that line did you become a libertarian? I was some sort of vague libertarian um, all the way back around my teenage years. Um, I, I, I'm maybe some sort of conservatarian. I don't know. I mean, I, I come from a family of mostly right wingers. Okay. Uh, and so like these days, like most of them, with a few exceptions, um, most of them are, you know, big Trump fans and whatever right. like that. Uh, and and so, you know, back in those days when I was growing up, they they were like still basking in the afterglow of of Ronald Reagan's awesomeness and all this sort of yep. stuff. Uh, and and so so I came from that background, and so I I knew I didn't like I didn't like the liberals and I didn't like socialists or whatever. Uh, but but I started to have some. As a teenager, I started to have some problems and doubts when it comes to um, comes to standard American conservatism, and it, it it didn't start with with the wars and all that. I I questioned that later, um, but the the first couple of things that kind of 
started to put me off from being a standard conservative. One was the war on drugs. As a teenager, like even before I tried any of these illegal drugs that were supposed to be so terrible, even before I got around to that, there was just something about the war on drugs that that I I just I guess maybe I was bright enough to to see the peril the peril uh, parallels to prohibition, and and maybe also I was I was um I don't know introspective enough to go wait a minute if if a guy just wants to like you know sit on his couch and do whatever drug and he's not you know because because the one, one thing the the drug warriors will always do is they'll muddy the issue by going well people who get on drugs all go out there and commit violent crimes and well not all of them do not, yeah. um there's a lot of people that do drugs that just do drugs you know and and don't don't hurt anybody else but themselves and and it just struck me as as insane that like if some you know peaceful hippie guy in a tie-dye shirt is just going to sit around and smoke some weed and he's not hurting a fly that, that you'd send cops to go drag him off to prison where he's then going to be tossed in with all these like genuinely dangerous and violent people. Um, that just some point in my teenage years, I was just like, this isn't, th- yeah. this doesn't make sense. And then the other issue I had with American typical conservatism is that from pretty early on, I decided I wasn't buying religion and there's a lot of religion in my family. So I was, I was definitely exposed to it, but um, from pretty early on, I was like, I, I, I don't, I don't think I'm believing all this stuff. And so all of the aspects of American conservatism that tend, tend towards some sort of theocracy uh, really, you know, I, from early on, I was, I was, I was a, a free speech absolutist. And this is back in the days when it was the right you know, in the eighties and nineties, back when it was the right, who were the big, uh, you know, hawks against free speech, right? Yeah, like flag burning and things like that. Yeah. 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 Throwing people in jail for burning the flag and wanting to just flat out like ban certain types of art and, um, you know, the whole, uh, censoring, uh, musicians and comedians and all, all this sort of stuff. You know, I, from pretty early on, I, w- I was not comfortable with, the government i was fine with private society like if you know parents don't want their kids listening to two live crew i was like all right for for little kids that's probably okay um but the idea that for grown adults you would have uh, the state coming in to censor things and decide what you're allowed to read and say or whatever, all those sorts of issues that go along with kind of the the theocratic elements of the right um they alienated me pretty pretty strongly starting in my teenage years. So by the time I was going to college and grad school, I was some sort of a vague um, libertarian. I was, you know, hopefully a little bit more intellectual depth to me. I I should like to think than, than like a Gary Johnson or something like that, but you know, somewhere in that, Area I, I can tell you with all I can tell you with all certainty you were deeper of a thinker than Gary Johnson even in college. <laughs> yeah, I mean I had already probably read read more big books by the time I was eighteen. I like um, Gary, but has. I like I, Gary, but he's I, not a intellectual heavyweight. Yeah, no, I mean he's a good guy. He's probably better. He was, I'm sure, he was better as a governor than most governors are. Yeah. But um, you know, got to grade things on the curve sometimes. So did you uh, get exposed to Rothbard or anybody like that uh, in college? Uh, not that I recall. And I, I really, this is, this is where I give some credit to the whole, uh, Ron Paul thing. Uh, because Ron Paul, the, the Ron Paul movement served as kind of my, my bridge 
from vague libertarianism, some sort of, you know, constitutionalist libertarian to, to being much more radical. And part of it was, um, I really got disillusioned even more. I, I already had issues with the American right, like I mentioned, going back to when I was a teenager. But George W. Bush's presidency destroyed any last little threads of of um, you know conservative Republican leaning uh, within me. You know any any sense that like they that those people were marginally better than the Democrats or what have you. It also destroyed any semblance that I still had, which I did have at the time of of still being somewhat of a right winger on foreign policy. Like I, I thought some of, of America's wars during the 20th century were a mistake. I didn't, you know, I, I thought world war one, uh, the U S shouldn't have got into, uh, for a long time. I still mostly believed in, in the good version of world war two, but I, you know, I, I had, I had questions about Korea. I thought Vietnam was a mistake, but I still had this kind of simplistic, you know, rah 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 for team america and the troops kind of attitude and then watching what the bush administration did after 9-11 with their wars and how disastrously they turned out and all that that just destroyed whatever was still in me that was like residually kind of well i don't always agree with the leaders but you got to support the troops and if that means supporting some of their wars but not all of them that's what we got to do uh by the time the bush administration was was partway through its second term i was like to hell with this uh this is this is a disaster and so i was very receptive i was probably like the ideal set of ears for ron paul's first campaign in 2008 because i was already on my own just watching the iraq war in real time and the afghanistan war in real time going this is messed up uh the cia is clearly a bunch of liars uh these wars are are totally unnecessary they have nothing to do with 9-11 and so, yeah, Ron Paul's campaign, I was probably the, like the most receptive person around. And then it's one of those things where, where you hear this like much more radically anti-war version of libertarianism um, then starts to get you thinking more radically about other things as well. And it was through the Ron Paul campaign as well that I first started to really think about things like the Federal Reserve. Yeah. And so that was the trail of breadcrumbs that eventually led me to – uh, people like Rothbard was was the Ron Paul campaigns of 2008. By the time 2012 came around, I think I was already like up to my eyeballs in in yeah. sort of Rothbard stuff. And of course, I'd gone back further and I'd read uh, Spooner and uh, all these other you know super radical people. And so um, by the time of the 2012 Ron Paul campaign, I, I had already probably been in my own mind considering myself an anarchist for a few years at least. And so um, I can I can say. Proudly, the very last time I ever uh, cast a vote in an election in my life was I threw a primary vote in Florida for Ron Paul in 2012. Okay. Um, I, I briefly registered as a Republican, even though I was I was completely beyond done with that party. But um, it's closed primary state, so I was like, well, let me briefly register as a Republican and um, throw a primary vote to Ron Paul just because. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, I I switched to no party affiliation. Yeah. Do you, do you vote now? No, I do not. Yeah. I, f- I figured that was probably the answer, which is, yeah, I, I would, I would not even be registered to vote. Uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that in Florida, uh, you have to register in order to get the, uh, 
tax exemption on your property tax. There's a um, oh. called a homestead property okay. tax. So basically, you get a property tax cut <laughs> if if your home in Florida is your primary the primary residence you live in. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things you have to do to qualify for that is you have to be registered to vote. So it's like, all right, well, you know, fine. I'll register as no party, and uh, yeah. you know, if I if I get summoned for jury duty. Um, probably I won't have to say very much until they're like, we don't want this guy. Yeah. 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 Uh, I've always wanted to get on a jury and nullify something, but I, I I think they could probably weed me out in, in, in about two seconds if they ask any questions at all. Yeah. It's, it's tricky, right? You know, do you, do you want to, do you want to be a wolf in sheep's clothing and sort of go like, Oh yeah, I believe in uh, the system and uh, these laws are great. And then get into the jury room and be like, all right, let's, let's, uh, you know, let's get this guy off the hook, even though he he had a giant uh, uh, bag of whatever in, in his pocket. This is a BS yeah. law, you know, do the jury nullification thing. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, if uh, if you haven't seen it, um, I'm sure you have. But if for the listeners, if you haven't seen 12 Angry Men, the Henry Fonda um, uh, movie, it's one of my favorite movies about what a jury should be like. So hmm. um it's uh, yeah. I haven't seen that in forever, so I don't okay. even really remember it. For I saw it once, probably twenty years ago. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth another look. It's especially uh, since you've uh, maybe if you've become a libertarian since then. Um, um, I, I I really like those that era of movies anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about the difference between and I, I have a little experience. I, I taught uh, at a charter high school for three years. Taught you know English and social studies. And so that's probably somewhat similar to teaching a community college in that not everybody that you're talking to really cares. They, they may just be there for the credit. Uh, they don't necessarily want to have intellectual discussions or anything like that. Talk about the difference between uh, how do you stay motivated to do that? And then the difference between that and, and podcasting to people who are buying in like I, I'm listening because I am interested in history and it, but there's not as much feedback there. So what's uh, how do you um, obviously do you enjoy podcasting more, I guess, or yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, without question. Uh, and, and I say this as someone who really likes a lot of aspects of teaching, but, but yeah, it's totally, it's totally different because it's a completely voluntary interaction between me and the listener in podcasting. No one has to listen to me for two seconds if they don't want to. Uh, and so that right away completely changes the dynamic in the relationship uh, versus, you know, students who to one degree or another are often not there in, in my class voluntarily. Uh, plus with podcasting, I have a complete blank slate canvas where I can say, Oh, I want to do, you know, hours and hours and hours on this one particular historical topic. Whereas in, in teaching, you can't do that. You know, you've got to get through whatever different time periods of American history over the course of the semester that you, that you have to for that course. Um, in college, there's a fair amount of, of leeway, at least in my experience in how you, you cover things. So that's kind of cool. So far college uh, is not, nearly as micromanaged as K through 12 in terms of, right. you know, that we have, we have our course outlines that we're supposed to do our best to try and, and get through over the course of the semester. But the course outlines are pretty uh, broad and, and vague and open-ended, you know, it'll be like world war two, 
the yeah. Cold War. But there's there's not a huge amount of micromanaging on like exactly what topics about World War II and the Cold War do you have to cover, you know? Um, so there's there's still relatively a, a lot of leeway. But I can't just you know walk in one day and go all right out of the blue because I feel like it. We're going to spend three hours talking about this one CIA operation, you know. Whereas in in podcasting you can. Um, the the way I stay motivated, uh, because yeah, very few of my students are history majors, and most of them, I mean, some of them might be there because they heard from someone else that I'm a good teacher or whatever like that. But um, you know, most of them are there because they were told, oh, here's a gen ed class you got to take, and you know, the time and place when I was offering it fit with their schedule, and that's about as you know as much as goes into it, and so. If it hadn't been for those gen ed requirements, they wouldn't, you know, a lot of them would, would never take a history class. Uh, so, you know, there's, and, th- and then you add in the fact that I'm grading them and deciding whether they pass or fail. And that creates this weird adversarial dynamic that's totally absent from podcasting as well. Yeah. And, and it's tough because, you know, you do have, there, there's a certain percentage of students that I'm sorry, I, I don't care what Hollywood says and, and what, you know, TV says there's a certain percentage of students that, and, and I know I sound like the warden from cool hand Luke, but there's a certain percentage you just can't reach right? for, for whatever reason, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different reasons, but you know, there's a certain percentage of students that are going to from start to end of the semester are just going to, just going to sit there looking at me like I owe them money and no, no amount of, of, of me, you know, doing a song and dance or whatever is going to make them suddenly really into it. And so part of what I do for my own uh, sanity and motivation is I just sort of focus on the percentage of students that are really, that are really receptive, that are really listening to what I have to say that are interested, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to lower everything to the lowest common denominator and lose the brightest and most interested and most hardworking students. So um, I actually had a, a colleague, he, he he went back into the private sector after a while, but he taught um, marine biology, and he was one of the other handful of faculty I know at my college who who actually is a libertarian. And uh, he, the way he described it was, he said to me, "This is early on when I was only there, had been there for a few years." He said to me, um, "I'm an educational Calvinist. I I've decided that there's just a, a certain percentage of, of people that, you know, are receptive and that I'm going to reach. And I try to do my best to really give them the best uh, experience I can and, and really, you know, teach them as, as well as I can. And there's a certain percentage of people that pretty much no matter what I do, it's not going to work. And so I just have to make my peace with the fact that there's there's the elect and there's the damned and you, right. you got to work for the elect. And let the others go to hell, I guess, was his. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, some of them are going to pass with a C minus and, and check the box and get through and whatever. And that's fine. And some yeah. of them are going to fail. And, you know, I, I think I think that Hollywood does the same thing with teaching that it does with romance, which is act like there is such a thing as perfection, that there yeah. is such a thing as like a romantic relationship that never has any problems or disagreements or issues. Yeah. And, and does the same thing with teaching that, oh, there are these wonderful teachers that reach every single student in the class all the time and whatever. It's like, that's just not realistic. And it gives you going into those things, it gives you an unrealistic set of expectations that then is going to make you more disillusioned and more disappointed when reality strikes and whether it's, you know, you get into an argument with your spouse and then you're like, oh, no, we had one argument. It's over. Disney taught us every, every relationship is supposed to be perfect. Yeah. Or whether it's realizing there's a certain percentage of your students that are just, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot you can do. 
Now, this past semester, I think you've been, uh, obviously, along with everyone else, doing everything online, remote learning. Is that correct? Yeah, about about two-thirds of the way through the semester. It was actually um, right as we were getting to spring break is when the COVID thing started to really blow up, okay. uh, mid, mid-March. Okay. And so uh, my spring break was already scheduled for the week of St. Patty's Day, which is when, when a lot of the lockdowns really began. Yeah. And uh, so they had kind of told us, in the week or two leading up to spring break day, it said, um, there's a possibility we might not be coming back after spring break because of this coronavirus thing. And so, Hey, take, take home, whatever you need, as far as, you know, your textbooks and other materials that you, that you need, yep. uh, and be prepared. And they kind of told us preemptively, um, I think in the several weeks leading up to spring break, like, Hey, start setting up some online stuff because yep. there's a good chance that things are, you know, um, going to be weird. And that's what happened over the course of spring break. First, they, they just, um, for the students, and I appreciated this for the students, they extended spring break an extra week. And then that week right after spring break was basically like a teacher work week where it was a week for us to complete setting up our online versions of our classes. So we got an extra planning week for that, which was, which was nice. Yeah. Um, and then from there it was rest of the semester purely <clears throat> online. And so it was, it's really weird. It's, it's one thing to set up an online class from the beginning, right? Where, you know, this yeah. is going to be an online class and you could set everything up just so, you know, I, I've done online classes uh, for years and, you know, when you know that ahead of time, you just set it up to be that, but to go through a regular in-person class for two thirds of the semester and then have to transform it into online, uh, on the fly. Yeah. It, it it was it was bizarre, and I'm yeah. and I'm sure to some degree most everybody's courses were kind of slapped together, jury rigged, um, with the exception, I guess maybe some some people if they teach the same class in person and online frequently, they yeah. probably were able to just uh, drop some of their online materials in. But my my issue was the classes that I was teaching in person are classes I don't normally teach online. Okay. And so I didn't already have a whole bunch of online material for those classes that I could just plug in for them. Uh, and so I had to kind of, uh, kind of slap it together on the fly. Yeah. So what do you think, um, you know, we've been hearing a lot about what the pandemic, um, is going to mean for like people working at home and in all sorts of industries. Uh, what do you think this semester and is going to reveal, uh, about higher education? Is this going to, greatly accelerate uh, things away from people paying the big bucks to be on campus and all that? Yeah, I think it has the potential. I mean, I think it's going to accelerate the trend of more and more things done online, which was already a big trend for 15 years. Um, and and we'll see what the, what the results are of kind of the back and forth between, between students and potential students and, and their parents and whoever, and then the institutions, because, you know, community college type colleges are already very inexpensive and affordable um, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it doesn't cost a whole lot to take a couple semesters of community college classes. Um, it's 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 insane when you compare it to like a, a big university or whatever. The the differences in costs just insane. Uh, and and why why more people don't spend a year or two at community college first and then transfer to a big school is beyond me. Other than they're just responding to propaganda because you know if you for example 
you, you take two years of classes at my school and then you transfer to to a big state university and finish up a bachelor's degree there, no one is going to care later when you're applying for grad school or applying for a job. Nobody is going to care that you knocked out your gen eds at community college. They're just going to see, oh, bachelor's degree from University of Florida or University of North Florida, and that's going to be that, you know. Um, so, so a school like mine is already pretty uh, affordable. I, I don't, I don't think there's going to be as much pressure on us to drop our prices for online. Um, but I could definitely understand it when you're looking at the the big name universities that you're. It's very hard to justify the cost, for example, that someone spends to go to a major state university, let alone an elite Ivy League university, yeah. and and say like, oh yeah, you're basically doing University of Phoenix. I mean, I'm sure they're probably going to be better than University of Phoenix in various ways, but you know, a big part of the of the justification for the high costs of those sorts of schools is the experience, right? Yep. The experience of campus life, of clubs, of getting to join skull and bones or whatever. And then also of like networking with, with the rest of the future elites uh, that are going to your school. And then also the interaction in person with the, with the professors and the faculty and everything like that. And it's like, how can you justify that if, a huge percentage of it is now going to be online and how can you justify the physical uh infrastructure and facilities and all that right if if a huge percentage of it is now going to be online because that's where a lot of the money has been going right that goes to the big fancy universities for those ridiculous tuition rates it goes a lot of it goes to um administrator uh, uh salaries at those universities and uh, in many of them, a lot of it goes to sports programs as well. Yeah. Um, although at least some of those, if they're the popular sports, do do bring in some money of their own. But um, but it goes to you know building fancier student centers with more restaurants in the food court and you know all this kind of cushy stuff at the fancy universities. And it's going to be really weird to see how how it plays out this kind of back and forth because. The thing about higher higher education is there's all these different forces and factors that insulate it to a large degree from market forces of competition and and consumer sovereignty and all that. But mark but but market forces of competition and consumer sovereignty aren't a hundred percent not there, right? They're not a hundred percent insulated from that. And so if people could start to to question more the narrative that everybody needs to go to college and that the fancier the college you go to, the better it means you are uh, regardless of cost. If people could start to, to question some of those assumptions and dogmas more, then I think there might be more leverage against uh, the institutions to, to make them figure out how to make things more affordable and accessible and all that sort of stuff. But where it's going to go, I don't know from my vantage point. Um, if, uh, the listeners, if you haven't, uh, listened to any of the dangerous history podcasts, there's a couple of recent, uh, episodes that I would recommend. Uh, one of them is the, is, uh, multi episodes, the Woodrow Wilson series, which I think has been excellent. And, uh, we got one more of those coming, I think. Oh, we got many more, many more. Okay. So you're just going to, that's good. You're not going to, you're not going to rush it. Um, No, 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 that, that one, it's going to be kind of like my civil war series where it'll probably unfold over a year or two. Okay. Um, The next one, and I've been working on this one for a while because it's going to be very large. 
the next one in the series, because where I got to in his life story as of now is I've gotten through his time as president of Princeton University. So I've got him like right as he's entering real world politics right. uh, to, to then become governor of New Jersey and then president of the United States. And, and what I'm doing for the next episode is I'm taking a little bit of a, of a diversion from the kind of biographical story to into his academic work, all of the okay. uh, articles and books and, and even some of the lectures that he, he put out because he was a professor for a couple of decades and then a, a university president for another decade. Uh, and so what's interesting about Wilson is like, we've got this window yeah. into his ideology and beliefs that we don't have uh, for most other presidents of the United States because he was an academic for so long. And we have to presume that the things, the, the beliefs he expressed when he was an academic must have been what he really thought at the time because he wasn't running for office, right? Like when, it, when a politician puts out their book about what they believe or whatever, but it's during the campaign, you have to take it with a grain of salt. They're, they're campaigning. And so, shocker, politicians sometimes express beliefs they don't truly hold when they're in the midst of a campaign season. Whoa, yeah. you know, big, big, big uh, Easter bunny's not real either. Um, but with Wilson, he was writing all this stuff about politics and history for years before he ever was inclined to actually run for office. So in, you know, a lot of it's after he already had a, a secure tenured position too, for that matter. And so we have to presume that it, it represents where his thinking really was at at any given time. And so anyway, this next episode that I'm working on, which is probably going to be several hours, uh, is just going to be digging really deep into that stuff i've i've been that's what i've been doing behind the scenes for however many months since the last wilson episode is and and it's not fun it's not yeah. fun his his academic writings uh are are <laughs> enhanced interrogation yeah, yeah. It, it, you've read a couple of uh, uh segments of his writing and it's it's exactly what you would think it would be from a pompous yeah you know turn of the century um academic like that yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the last Wilson episode I did was just taking one of his articles that he wrote as a professor that I think is one of the most important for him, uh, for his development, and also for progressivism itself, um, which is the study of administration. And I just took that thing apart piece by piece, and um, I forget how long that was. That was probably an hour, hour and a half or something like that going over one article. Uh, and so, you know, if, and, and, and that was excruciating, uh, it, but it needs to be done. It's a dirty job. So, you know, if I can, if I can dig apart for that long on one article, uh, this, this episode about his entire, you know, academic work in, in the big picture, it's going to be huge. And, um, but then after I do that one, which hopefully I'll get it done, uh, sometime in June, um, after I do that one, then I'm going to be back into sort of the chronological biographical narrative of, uh, his, his life and career. So I'll be picking up with him becoming governor of New Jersey and doing that for two years. And then I'm going to have a whole episode just on the 1912 presidential election. Cause right. that's such a crazy, unusual election in a lot of ways. Uh, and then from there, it's going to be just, you know, episodes on different aspects of his presidency, 
Um, I'm going to do a, at least one whole episode just on Wilson and his Latin American interventions, because yeah. even before he got the U.S. into World War One, he was already a trigger happy interventionist. He invaded yeah. Mexico twice. He invaded uh, Haiti at least once. Uh, and then a whole list of Latin American Caribbean countries that he invaded or overthrew their government or occupied them off and on for various. And these, by the way, were a lot of the, the early banana wars that Smedley Butler was in the front lines of. Yep. Uh, coincidentally. So, um, and that's a part of Wilson's presidency that most people don't know. Most people are told the mainstream narrative that Wilson was this liberal peacenik and only very reluctantly got America into World War I. And the reality is just like with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and all these sorts of people today, uh, he had this, this very peacenicky sounding sort of rhetoric to him, but he was trigger happy as all get out. You know, he's, He's just invading all these little countries. It's just these are the sorts of wars that that Americans often don't don't talk about and don't discuss uh, either at the time or later. These these small wars, but yeah. they're not very small to the to the little countries on the receiving end, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're living in Haiti and the U.S. invades and overthrows your government and occupies you for a number of years, it's like that's a pretty big deal to you, yeah. right? Uh, we're also going to meet, uh, I think, Colonel House coming up. Uh, he's a pretty interesting. Uh, cat in the oh, oh sure Wilson yeah I mean, you can't cover wilson's presidency yeah. without covering house because for about three quarters of his presidency he was probably wilson's closest advisor uh, and was very important in in getting him the democratic nom- nomination in the first place he wasn't the only important uh person in that um but you know one of the most important for sure and in, in fact house actually uh picked wilson's first cabinet it's it's very it's like what we found out recently about Obama, where basically what was it? Citigroup picked his cabinet yeah. that came out in, uh, in in some WikiLeaks documents, I think. Right. Um, similar sort of deal, only it was it was one guy, not not a not a bank. Right. Um, the only thing he couldn't he couldn't uh, defer to House was Secretary of State because he had already promised that to William Jennings Bryan in order to get the Bryan wing of the Democratic Party to support yeah. him. Yeah, and so he said, "Well, you know, I've already I've already handed this out." He actually offered. House any job in the cabinet other than Secretary of State. And House, because he understands how most presidential administrations works, House says, oh, no, thanks, Woodrow. Uh, I, I just want to be an informal kind of friendly advisor because he understands in most presidential administrations, those sorts of guys are the ones that have the most influence on the president, not the not the official people, not the cabinet. You know, if you're secretary of this or that, you're you're busy, you know, managing a giant unwieldy bureaucracy and trying to do all that stuff. And yeah, you have your meetings with the president and whatever, but if you're a friendly informal advisor who's just hanging out with the president all the time, um, you know, I mean, who, who do you think really has more influence on Trump? Uh his his cabinet people or Jared Kushner, right? Right. Yeah. Um that's that's how the kitchen cabinet usually is is who dominates it. So yeah. so House House says uh, no thanks, I'll be an informal advisor. And then Wilson's kind of like well, I'm kind of new to politics at the national level, so would you help me to know who the good folks are to make postmaster general and secretary yeah. of war and whatever? And basically, House gives him a list, like, make this guy this and make that guy that. And then Wilson just boom, 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 straight down the list, wow. nominates every single guy to the post that House said. Um, and it's it's very interesting cabinet, too, by the way. It was the first since the Civil War that was jammed full of southerners and and a lot of them were like like old school 
neo-confederates like real neo-confederates right. right not not just you know the modern day smear uh, right. version but like actual neo-confederates um and you know wilson was already pretty racist even by the standards of back then but then some of his cabinet guys were more racist than he was yeah. and they then nudged him to do things like rigidly segregate the u.s government civil service and rigidly segregate the military these things were um the military before Wilson was only kind of partially segregated is the best way to put it. And the civil service was actually to a large extent unsegregated. So, you know, in the offices of, of the, the war department or the post office or whatever, like you had black uh, civil servants working alongside white ones since the civil war. And, uh, and, and Wilson said, Oh, this won't do. And rigidly segregates it, which in practice meant a whole bunch of, of black employees of the government got fired or demoted or whatever. Um, and, and a lot of that was coming his, his postmaster general in particular was a a few other guys in his cabinet too, were, were just vehement racists, you know, um, actual racists, right? Not, not today where, where everyone who doesn't agree with me is a racist kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably some of those guys, uh, were probably clan members too, right? I mean, I I can't remember um, if any of them were actual clan members. Certainly some of them were, if nothing else, kind of sympathetic. Yeah. Um, the, the clan didn't, the, the original clan had, had faded out right. at the end of reconstruction. And I don't recall off the top of my head, if any of his cabinet had actually been formally involved in that, maybe, maybe a few of them had. And the second clan gets started during his presidency and doesn't really start to take off until the late 19 teens, early 1920s. But um, another interesting figure in Wilson's cabinet is William Gibbs McAdoo, who like Wilson was originally from the South, but then moved to the North and spent most of his life in the North, just like Wilson. And, um, uh, McAdoo, I think, was originally from Georgia and then had had moved up to New York and become successful in some different business things there. And Wilson, again, at House's suggestion, Wilson makes him Secretary of the Treasury. And uh, McAdoo, he then starts up a relationship with Wilson's uh, daughter. Okay. And eventually marries her, even though he was like decades older than her. You know, he's probably at least twice her age. Right. And so the secretary of the treasury becomes also the president's son-in-law. So imagine if like Jared Kushner was simultaneously secretary of the treasury to get a sense of like how yeah. weird this is. Yeah. Um, and, and then also imagine Jared Kushner was like, you know, 50 and, uh, and, and Trump's daughter was like 20 or something. Yeah. Uh, and, and then once he's in that position, um, he starts to make a bigger name for himself as 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 sort of a, a a populist progressive reformer, right? And and during the war, he he exercises all kinds of power, um, including he he he's the point man for the U.S. government taking over the nation's railroads during World War One. Um, but interestingly, after the war, I want to say it was in 1924. I could be off in the year. Uh, McAdoo then. I think by then he might have been a senator or something like that. He runs for the Democratic Party's nomination for president. He ends up not getting it, but he was endorsed simultaneously by various progressive groups as well as um, the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. So, you know, 
it, it's a it's another window into the the clan and the progressives they didn't overlap a hundred percent back then but they definitely had some overlap yeah and they definitely had some some issues on which they they agreed including a lot of progressives not all progressives but a lot of progressives in the early 20th century favored alcohol prohibition as did the clan right um a lot of progressives uh, favored eugenics policies, as did also the Klan. Yep. Um, so there's there's an interesting overlap that a lot of people today are unaware of. That there there was some overlap between progressivism and the Klan and groups like that back in say like the 19 teens and 20s. In fact, um, there was even a, a governor of Florida that almost nobody knows about because because nobody but me knows a ton of Florida history. But Florida had a governor back around the time of World War I that embodied this kind of nexus of progressivism and Klan, racism, populism kind of stuff. A guy named Sidney Katz. And Sidney Katz ran uh, for the Democratic nomination for governor of Florida. This is back when Florida was solid south. And so all the, all the action was the Democratic primary. Um, because whoever the Democrats nominated were going to win in the general election by landslide. And so he runs for the Democratic uh, nomination as sort of like a, a populist insurgent within the Democratic Party. He loses, and then he gets himself nominated by uh, a minor party called the Prohibition Party, okay. which favored alcohol prohibition. This is before it had been passed, obviously, and also in general was kind of Beyond that, a mixture of progressivism and racism and stuff like that. And so he, he runs for governor of Florida in the general on the Prohibition Party ticket, manages to win. And um, then is governor kind of during the World War I time period. And he, um, he favored various types of like progressive programs and whatever. And, and also was uh, not only anti, anti-black, but also anti, anti-Catholic and just and sort of in general anti-foreign. This is, this is during World War I. Um, among other things, uh, when there was, there were like some lynchings or something like that, some sort of racial violence that happened during his term, he didn't condemn the lynchings. He instead condemned, I think he condemned the NAACP for complaining about the lynchings. Right. <laughs> right? And uh, like, like you people are causing a ruckus, you know, kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and then also during World War I, uh, Governor Sidney Katz, on the record, did some wild conspiracy theorizing where, and, and I'm trying to remember the details of this because it was so insane. He said he had reason to believe that the German government and the Vatican were operating in Florida through a, a, a monastery, a Catholic monastery in Tampa, which there, there hardly were any Catholics in Florida during this time period is one of the few places you could have found many of them is in this little monastery in, in Tampa. Right. And he was saying that they, that those guys were sort of acting as the agents of the Vatican slash the Kaiser and that they were hatching a plan to smuggle in a bunch of guns to then arm blacks in the right. South to right. try and overthrow America. <laughs> and it's like, it's wilder than, I, yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's like the Alex Jones of like the 19 teens or something like this. And this guy was the governor of Florida, right? So yeah. you think Florida went crazy recently. It's like, no, no, uh, it's been full of, full of nut jobs for a long time, but yeah. I mean, just think about this. You're just like, wild. like, well, I don't like the Germans because of the war. I don't like black people and I don't like Catholics. Well, let me just, you know, smush so, them all together into some sort of crazy conspiracy theory. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, 
talking about uh, another episode um, of Dangerous History Podcast that I really loved recently was episode 200, which you called Honest History. And my original um, uh, sort of battery of questions for you um, kind of uh, mirrored kind of uh, uh, some segments of that. So we're not going to go, I'm not going to ask you to, to, to rehash that episode, but I am recommending that everyone listen uh, to that. And one question I did want to ask maybe in the light of that episode, and you can still define what you mean by honest history and, and stuff like that. But um, I, I always have as a inveterate book buyer and I, you know, I read a lot of history and stuff too. And I, I sometimes read a book that I'm favorably impressed by, but I, but then I, other people tell me that's not a good historian. Uh, and one of the, the prime example of that is Howard Zinn's people's history of the United States. I liked a lot of that. It has a lot of anti-state things, even though I guess he's a Marxist and um, very uh, slanted. I think some of the, the pro union stuff I think was inaccurate from him. Uh, so Zen in particular, I'm interested to hear your opinions about, but more so, how do we know as a lay reader when we pick up a, a history book and when we read it, whether it's BS or not? What are we looking for? What are the signs that, that we can trust this uh, historian? Okay, well, uh, one thing just in general that I would look for is a lot of source citations. And if it's um, an academic history uh, book or article, it should be uh, Chicago style footnotes or endnotes. And then uh, in more kind of like popular history books done by major publications, the better ones will still have some sort of, of like endnotes or footnotes. It may not be doctrinaire Chicago format or whatever, but um, so so I, I would look for a lot of citations, and then I, I would suggest anyone who really wants to get um, serious about historical research and reading lots of big, serious history books, uh, to familiarize yourself with the format of source citations and how it works so that when you look at a footnote or an endnote, you understand what you're looking at um, because it's, it's its own kind of little code. It's its own kind of language. And so to be able to understand, okay, is this person citing a, another book? Are they, are they citing this from some sort of primary source? If so, what is it? Is this from an article so that you can understand? Um, and then I, I would look for a, a lot of primary source citations, Rather, I mean, not to say that there should be no secondary or tertiary sources, but a lot of primary source citations, particularly if it's a book that's like purporting to be an original piece of like new research or new revelations or whatever um, in, in the kind of historical craft, whether you're talking about an academic historian or even like a more popular historian who maybe had a background as a journalist or something like that and then writes history books. Uh, you want to you wanna see more citations given to primary source documents, the actual historical documents and records of the thing they're researching. Uh, not to say that they should have none from secondary sources, but, but, but the, the preponderance should be primary sources. And then if you, if you see that and then you're reading it and then anything that strikes you as 
surprising or for any reason questionable, then you can look up the footnote or endnote for that and go, all right, all right, that's where this came from. Let me go look it up for myself. Uh, because sometimes you'll find, you know, there might be an accurate quote of something, but it's taken out of context. And then you actually go read the whole thing from which it was, it was taken. And you, you come to the conclusion, like what, whether this person was deliberately trying to slant things or not, or was just simply being, you know, nudged by their own, by their own uh, preexisting biases, they maybe interpreted this in a way that I now looking at the original primary source, I look at this one sentence they quoted in the context of the whole thing and go, uh, I don't think they're accurately representing what that sentence means, right? Because we all know you can you can chop something out of context and and make it seem like something that's not at all what it seems like when you see the whole context. So if you if you're dealing with a book with a lot of good footnotes or or other you know there's other formats in different disciplines too that are sometimes used, but the big one for history is footnotes or endnotes. Yeah. Um, and then you have the knowledge to understand how to interpret those, and then you're able to go track things down. Uh, because, you know, every now and then I'll come into something where it's a quote or a statement or whatever, and I go, that just seems, that, that, that you know, seems bizarre. And then, um, you know, you follow up and then you find out either like, oh, wow, this actually is legit. Or you find out, oh, they're putting a particular spin on this. They're interpreting this a certain way that I don't think is accurate or, or, or whatever. Um, so I, I think you can get some amount of value out of almost any history book that has a lot of good uh, citations and good research, even if you ultimately come to the conclusion that it's got some serious flaws, but at least you have the, the capability to figure out what about that book is, is solid and what is not. And, you know, you don't always have time to do this with every single book you read. Right. So, so you have to kind of pick and choose a little bit what's, what's really important. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm in the middle of this off and on gigantic series about Woodrow Wilson. So for sure, when I run into something about Woodrow Wilson, that seems weird or surprising or doesn't seem to add up to what I already know, um, I will track down the footnote and I will one way or another dig up where it came from and, um, and really try and figure out what's going on. So that's something I know some people have criticized uh, another uh, historian, in, in his own way, you know, not a not an official historian, but another another guy I'm a big fan of, um, John Taylor Gatto, um, has been criticized by by other people that I respect very much, and I think there's some truth to this. That uh, Gatto, for example, was not systematic in things like footnotes and citations, and that this sometimes is an issue because sometimes then it's tough to track down where something comes from that he cites. Yeah. And then the other thing is, um, you know, that at least sometimes you could accuse him of maybe not consciously, but, but through his own, his own lens, perhaps interpreting certain statements in certain ways that another person might look at and say, I don't think it's as sinister as, as what, what right. you're interpreting it as. So, right. but, so, but again, that doesn't mean I, I don't think that a book like the underground history of American education isn't a great book and doesn't have a lot of value. I still, it's one of my most recommended books for people, even though I, I would admit that as just a, a pure work of historical research, there's, there's some shortcomings, right? Ha, have you read Zinn's people's history? Yes. What, what's your assessment of that? I, I, I've, I, I don't find too many people who have actually read it, whose opinions I respect. Uh, I find a lot of people, libertarians saying, why would you read something like that? He's a Marxist. So, uh, 
So what, yeah. what was your take on the book? And should you ever, should you ever automatically discount someone from, because of this particular school of thought they come from in history? Uh, n- no, I would not. I would not. I've, I've gotten plenty of value from, uh, history books and articles written from people by people of all sorts of persuasions. I mean, the vast majority of academic history out there is, uh, is, is some sort of center left kind of mainstream, mainstream progressive point of view. And I think that the studies bear this out, that that's basically the ideology of most of, of academia. Um, they're, they're people who run maybe from like, from Hillary Clinton, to about as far left as Bernie Sanders, right? It would be the preponderance of academia. And then there's a smaller group of further left people. These are like your actual, you know, Marxists and, and what have you like that. I know the the American right and even some libertarians sometimes will lump together like the center left progressives with the communists, but like, right. hey, look, I'm not either of them. I've got issues with both of them, but like, let's not pretend, right, that Howard Zinn is in the same boat as like Doris Kearns Goodwin or something right. like this. You know, it's yeah. totally different. Um, uh, group. That's like acting like Marco Rubio and Murray Rothbard are pretty much interchangeable or something like it's like, no. right. Um, but so Zen, the, the book itself, what did you yeah. think of it? Um, I think it was mostly pretty good. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm overall a fan of it. I think I put it in my top 10, uh, uh, dangerous U S history books episode I did a while ago. Um, it is a book I recommend to a lot of people. And uh, I don't think that it's, you know, perfect. And um, it's been a while since I've read it. So I don't yeah. get my fingertips have like specific things I can say that he's wrong on. And I won't claim that I've like chased down, you know, all of his footnotes to try and verify every single one of them that um, usually in a, in a, in a mainstream or academic book, the basic fact checking is okay. And so it's not like you're likely to run into fabricated citations or whatever, but it's more a question of like, if you go, track down a citation and read the primary document. Does it accurately convey the context and meaning of what that document was saying? Right. Um, And so I can't say I've done that with a huge amount of Zinn. I think one of the things to do with somebody like Zinn as an active reader is uh, to sort of understand or, or, or have an eye out for the passages where, he is um, he where he's interpreting certain things a certain way versus the passages where he's just sort of conveying information. So that that, that distinction between fact versus truth and meaning that I made in episode two hundred, and so I can read a hard leftist like Howard Zinn or Gabriel Kolko for that matter, and because I understand where they're coming from ideologically, I can identify as I'm reading certain points they make that are at least debatable, right? As far as how they're interpreting the information. Um, And sometimes in those instances, I might actually agree with their interpretation. Sometimes I don't, but I I would, I would urge anyone who wants to really get into um, historical research and all that stuff to, aside from the nuts and bolts things of like, really understanding how footnotes work and all that, I would say another thing to do is to read up a bit on what's called historiography and uh, schools of thought in history. Because if you have a decent understanding of historiography and schools of thought, uh, 
then you'll be able to probably tell pretty quickly in a book if you're not already aware, right, that where this person's coming from um, in terms of their ideology. And then you can you can then interpret what they have to say through that. And it doesn't mean that they're all wrong. It doesn't mean that they don't get a lot of things right. But you go, oh, okay, this guy is coming from this sort of school of thought. Therefore, when he makes certain points a certain way, I can at least potentially take them with a grain of salt. And it doesn't mean all of his information is wrong. It just means I may or may not always agree with how he's interpreting the meaning of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, if, if someone hadn't told me that, that Howard Zinn was a you know pretty far lefty historian, I'd be able to read that book in no time being like, oh, this is where he's coming from. Yeah. And, and Zinn, I think, is it's more complicated than that he's just like a doctrinaire Marxist. I mean, he definitely has – some sympathy with a lot of Marx's interpretation, but he, he is um, the kind of leftist that I like in that, you know, aside from the fact that he's, he's good on a lot of really important issues like war and the police state and all that um, he's independent. I would say he's, he's cert- certainly no, no democratic party hack for sure, but he's also not like a, a, a communist automaton who's just, you know, barfing out, Das Kapital uh, talking points, you know, he, right. he definitely has some independent streaks to him. Uh, and those are the sorts of leftists I like, like that, or, or somebody like William Appleman Williams is another, another left-wing historian that I'm a huge fan of that I think makes a lot of very, very important points. But right. um, people often tend to want a package deal and say, well, if, if whatever, if this person disagrees with me on some aspects of economics, then I have to think they're completely full of it on everything else. But right. um, I don't see it that way. I think it's also, by the way, one of the, one of the strengths of, of uh, Murray Rothbard's work on a lot of things is that he was able to understand that you don't have to either accept 100% or 0% of what somebody has to say that you can say, Oh, they're dead right on these really important things. And yeah, they're wrong about some stuff over here, but fine. I don't have to endorse that stuff. I can just, you know, uh, put the spotlight on the things that I think they really nailed. And so, you know, fine. I, don't think socialism is is a good answer but that doesn't mean they're not right about a whole bunch of other things yeah um i've got tons more questions but i don't want to keep you much longer so i'm gonna if if you have about five or ten more minutes i'll restrict myself to two more questions okay Um, one uh is donald trump um i know that uh kind of the one of the the it's a pretty hackneyed thing to ask a um, historian, what they think about current events and what historians are going to say in the future. But that's kind of part of my question with Trump. Is, is Trump unprecedented? And is he, more importantly, do you think we're, he's a signal that we're about to get, undergo another political realignment? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that some, so we're in the midst and I don't think it's quite played out yet. I think it, it might take another election cycle or two to fully play out that we're in the midst of uh, of a phenomenon this is not an idea i invented but it's something i've i've covered in a few episodes the idea of party systems and how right. a party systems sort of shift over time uh and and yeah i think i wasn't sure when the trump election first happened because you can never tell right away when there's a weird election where something unusual happens is it a one-off fluke that's caused by some particular circumstances in that election or is it a signifier of an actual party system shift where either one or both of the two big parties have a significant change in what it is they're really about, what the issues they're focused on really are and, and sort of who supports that party and why. Right. So um, 
you know, eight elections where you can sort of see this happening would be like 1896, uh, 1932. Some would argue maybe 1968, if not 1980, um, that there's these sort of periods where one or both of the parties kind of just change what they're really about. Um, and I think that Trump's election seems to be signifying some sort of shift of party system, but I don't think it's fully played out yet. And part of it is I, I think that the 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 Democrats still haven't solidified into what exactly is is their alternative to Trump. There's there's multiple factions scrambling there uh, to try and figure out the the Democratic response to Trumpism. And then even within the Republican Party, there's still some amount of things in flux uh, that that the Republican Party still hasn't quite figured out. It'd be interesting to see whether whether Trump does another four years or not. Post Trump, once he's out, uh, will will the Republican Party have a lasting imprint from yeah. him the way they did, say, from Ronald Reagan, right? Where that became like their brand for the next thirty years was basically just rehashing Reaganism, um, at least in rhetoric, if not in 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 yeah. policy. Not that Reagan was even Reagan in, in policy, but um, right. so so yeah, uh, I, I think in in many ways, not just in terms of the political parties. Um, that, that we're in some sort of a transitional phase right now where a lot of things are in flux. And I don't think that the coronavirus, uh, situation is a cause of it. I think it was already for a while, uh, that we were in this sort of transitional period, but I think the coronavirus kind of added some fuel to it and, and kicked a few things into overdrive and kicked up the insanity level a little bit. Um, but in, in some ways, this whole, when you put it all together, you put, put together, uh, uh, Trump, you put together the responses to Trump, you put together the, the establishment and intelligence agencies and mainstream media's responses to Trump, the democratic party response to Trump. And then you add in the coronavirus and all the fallout from it and I, I I don't know, <laughs> you know, yeah. how this plays out. There's so many so many wild cards and novel uh, factors to think about that just you know all kinds of things that just didn't exist in previous periods where there was some some instability and transition and shift. Like we don't we don't know exactly what the internet and social media is going to to do long term in terms of all this stuff. You know, we don't know how this is all going. We don't know what is the legacy of the coronavirus lockdown and all that going to be yeah. yet. So. Yeah. And I think uh, another thing I, I, I sometimes think the Republicans are going to be the party that's going to die or transform drastically first. But then you look at the divisions in the uh, Democratic side of things with the Bernie Sanders wing versus the rest. Neither one of them. I think they're, they both seem to be at a crisis of identity. Um, yeah. That- and there's. Oh, I'm sorry, but um, it, there, there's, there's a generational thing going on too, which is yep. another dimension of it. And maybe that's that's maybe I'm jumping ahead to, to what, what you were going to get at. But yeah, um, one one guy that I that I listen to a lot that I find very interesting to listen to that I certainly don't agree with on everything, but I he always makes me think is uh, Eric Weinstein okay. and his podcast, The Portal. Uh, this is the brother of Brett Weinstein, who the Evergreen State fiasco. He was the center of that. Um, and and Eric Weinstein, one of the things I like about him is he brings up this generational dynamic thing a lot, which which doesn't get brought up much in our in our discourse. And basically, 
you look at the two the two parties and the the party elites are almost all baby boomers right and i mean there's a handful of maybe silent generation people that are still around that are you know in their 80s or whatever um but there are very few like gen xers or later even though in previous eras of american politics there there would be yeah there would be some elderly people in the senate or running for president but there would also be plenty of you know think back to like the 50s where um you know you have, you have richard nixon and john f kennedy who right. at the time in the 50s and early 60s they were they were in, in their early 40s yep. um and so but now it's like we're we're looking at at trump versus biden which either one of them will be the oldest president we've ever had. Yep. And there, there is something to this. And, 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 you know, when you speak in aggregates, it's important to, I'm, I'm not going to jump on the thing of like all boomers are bad or whatever. Cause there's plenty of great boomers that I know, but, but when you look at it generally, generationally, not, not even the boomers specifically, there is something about um, people who are, who grow up in a certain context who who learn how to deal with the world and life and whatever in that context and then it's just human nature yes there are some people who continue learning new new things and adapting and whatever well into their 80s and 90s but the the tendency of most people is to become by the time you're in your elderhood to become sort of set in your ways and your understanding of the world and it's the you know the stereotype has some truth in it that you know not all, but many elderly people are like slow to adopt technology and slow to adapt to changes in, in the world and in demographics and whatever. And so I think that's another dimension of what's going on here is that you've got mostly leaders who grew up in the, the glowing aftermath of World War II uh, under certain circumstances that no longer exist. They, they grew up in a Cold War paradigm. And they grew up in a paradigm uh, that was very different. You know, they, they grew up in a time period where you, you could go to college by working a part-time job and graduate with no debt. And you could, you know, relatively easily find a middle-class job with virtually any, cl- any college degree. You know, that's just like any, didn't even matter what your degree was in. You'd find a good middle-class job and, um, you know, housing was relatively affordable relative to the cost of living and all these sorts of things. And then the cold war paradigm of what the larger world is and how to deal with it. And so now you, you drop those people, those people are, are running the institutions of power in 2020 when the world, both domestically and globally is a completely different world. And so part of, you know, I think part of what's going on in terms of first the war on terror and then the new kind of, intermittent cold war with russia and or china uh, and all this is like people from from that earlier time period are trying to recreate the cold war in a way because that's but world they know and uh and and you know they I, and and don't you know anyone listening? Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying if we had just put in place a bunch of people in their 40s and made yeah. them the president, whatever, like everything. Would be, I'm not saying it's that simple at all. But I'm saying part of the particular character of what's going on is that there is this disconnect in yeah. terms of the world that we're in right now is not the world of the mid 20th century or even late 20th century. Yeah, you're definitely right there. Uh, one, my last question was kind of lighthearted, uh, something we have in common. You're a guitar player. You mentioned you've been a guitar teacher. 
what uh, how'd you get into guitar what do you play uh what's your rig what well uh let's see i started playing when i was around 12 okay. and uh and my father uh, was a still is a, a guitarist and singer uh he had a a semi-successful local uh band back in the 60s uh and so i just kind of grew up like he was always you know playing guitar and singing songs so it was just one of those things where eventually one day i was like hey teach me some of that stuff uh and then eventually he kind of taught me what he knew and then i got to a point where he said like well that's kind of all i know you know uh and and so he then um got me some professional lessons or or i did some more advanced stuff beyond that so um i've i've messed around with most different styles of music and i've got pretty eclectic tastes um these days, a lot of my favorite stuff is in the sort of alternative country cowboy punk sort of realm of like uh, that that runs from Americana through alternative country out to more kind of like country punk rock sort of stuff. Right. Um, that's that's a lot of the stuff that I'm just finding myself drawn to lately. And so um, I used to be in more into rockabilly. I'm not as into it these days, although I still have affection for it. Um, but yeah, these these days I've I'm, I mostly um, I used to have a bunch more guitars, but um, I've got my main electric guitar these days is a Fender Telecaster. I've been mostly a Tele guy the past few years. I used to play a Gretsch that I oh, got wow. um, back when I was in in my rockabilly phase. Uh, yeah, I had a, had a Gretsch Duo Jet solid body or silver jet actually sparkly silver um but i sold that a number of years ago when i was whittling down the herd so yeah mostly i play uh telecaster and then i've got a martin acoustic so but i only play casually these days i haven't played in a band in probably 18 years or something like that but i've i played in a in a bunch of different genres i even um when i was in high school i was sort of like the 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 floating hired gun who who sort of you know floated between multiple bands kind of thing and so right. you know i played a little while uh, in a band that played sort of punk rock i played in a little while a band that played more kind of classic rock you know pink floyd that kind of stuff um even played a little bit of metal back in those days what so. uh, what kind of martin do you have uh it's a uh i think it's the dx series it's oh uh, yeah. yeah it's like it's like the most affordable Martin you could get. That's still like a real made in the USA Martin. Right. Um, so it's, it's very plain as far as it doesn't have like fancy inlays and all that kind of right. stuff, but I actually kind of like it. I, I like the charm. Like it's, it's ostentatiously plain. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but it, it sounds as good as a Martin that, that costs three times as much. Yeah. You know, they just save the money on the inlays and all that. Right. It's not as fancy. Um, why don't you recommend two or three uh, of your favorite guitar players? And then, then we'll say goodbye. Oh, gee whiz. That's, that's a tough thing to do. Um, uh, I'm a huge, been a huge fan of Brian Setzer yep. for ever. So he was a big influence on me. Um, I'm a big fan also of the Reverend Horton heat as well. Another, okay. another really good rockabilly player. Uh, let's see. Um, probably gonna, gonna leave somebody important out that i'll be kicking myself out about later um i mean of course Jimi hendrix i mean i've been a, a fan of Jimi. my dad playing in a, in a 60s rock band of course meant that i was exposed from very very young age to 
to to Jimi Hendrix and all the stuff from that era. Um, and uh, beyond that, Clapton when he was in Cream. Yep. Clapton post Cream, not interesting. Well, you don't like uh, the Derek and the Dominoes, the Layla. No. Oh man, that's one of my no. favorite albums. I, I agree that yeah. he's put out a lot of bad music, but uh, I, I just he's Clapton in Cream was so interesting. He yep. was he was so. Um, you know, just off the rails. I mean, he was, he was almost up there with Hendrix in terms of just like the, the wild innovation he was doing in cream. And then I feel like ever since cream, he just became like just another generic um, sort of pentatonic blues player, just kind of running through the same blues cliches endlessly. Um, But in, in cream, he was, he's great. Um, And, and uh, let's see, like there was, there was somebody else I wanted to mention on the, Oh well, I'm 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 blanking out. That's okay. I've taken up uh, way too much of your time already, and I'm I'm very appreciative of it. Um, uh, like I say, Dangerous History podcast, one of my favorites. Uh, what else? Uh, give you a chance to plug that, and maybe other things that might be coming up, and then we'll say goodbye. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Dangerous History podcast is is uh, the, get the history in depth from. Uh, uh, anarchistic sort of perspective that is is skeptical of the state and uh, other institutions of power, but from somebody who actually, you know, did come through academic historical education and all that. So I'm not, you know, I'm for whatever that means, I've got some credentials anyway, even though they're not fancy Ivy league ones. Um, But I, you know, I know how to, how to do research and, and, and do history and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I try to make it interesting. So, so hopefully that works. Um, right now I'm in the middle of the Woodrow Wilson series. That's kind of an off and on again thing. Uh, I've also got in the works and I sometimes hesitate to say what I'm working on, uh, in, in okay. public because, because then people get impatient yeah. and they, and they don't understand that like it takes countless hours of research and all that sort of stuff for, for one hour of podcast. But, um, some things I've got on the horizon, one of them would include uh, doing some coverage on the Spanish flu epidemic, so-called yep. of 1918, obviously very relevant to current events in a lot of ways. Um, I also am working on a multi-part series that'll be a nice companion to the Woodrow Wilson series about the aspects of American mobilization for World War One that have to do with the sort of two sides of the coin of number one, creating propaganda for the war, which a lot of people, you know, who've read up on world war one may know about this George Creel, uh, the committee on public information and all the propaganda they pumped out during the war. And then the other side of the coin, which was suppressing dissent. So, you know, on the one hand, the government is creating all this propaganda. On the other hand, they're doing their best to stamp out dissident voices. And, and that's multi-level too, where you have the top down, government suppression of dissent through things like the espionage and sedition act locking people in jail for saying the wrong thing but then there also was the bottom up or horizontal enforcement of that which was you know various individuals and groups throughout the country that weren't part of the government officially but that were just taking matters into their own hands and doing things like beating the crap out of or even lynching uh, maybe anti-war speakers or people who said something nice about the German language or who yeah. knows what. Um, and so anyway, this is still in the, in the kind of sketching and research stages, but my basic idea of it 
as of this moment is to do three parts to that, where one part is all about the government creating propaganda. Okay. The second part is about the government suppressing dissent and the, and the third, and maybe not in this order, who knows, but then the, the third part of it will be the vigilanteism, the bottom up, the horizontal enforcement of people kind of taking it on their own initiative yeah. uh, to go be patriotic enforcers. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. So I, I'm going to let you go get back to work. I want that next Wilson episode pretty soon. And uh, th- I really appreciate your time, CJ. Thanks. Hey, thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out. And you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level. And you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. 